Hello, everyone. Uh, can you turn your uh, Bibles to Obadiah verse 1, please? Obadiah verse 1. We'll be finishing off our study of Obadiah 15 in the second session by noting that Edom would be treated in the same manner that they treated Judah, the principle of lex telionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and we'll be talking about that in this second session. But um, let's, before we get into let's pray for this uh, lesson, but also let's pray for the offering as well. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, full of grace and mercy and love, we just thank you so much for all the wonderful blessings that you've given to us, whether the material or spiritual. We thank you so much for treating us better than we deserve. We thank you for the logistical grace blessings that you've given to us on a day-by-day -day basis. We thank you, Father, for all these blessings you've given to us, our jobs, our homes, our families, uh, our salaries. We thank you, Father, for uh, the health that we do have. We thank you, Father, for uh, our children and grandchildren and our homes and businesses. We thank you for all these blessings, Father, that we often take for granted. And we thank you for these bodies that you've given to us to enjoy creation, to serve you. And just, Father, we just pray that this offering, this love gift to you, being a reflection of our attitude toward you, of humility and thankfulness, and we just pray, Father, that you would accept it, and uh, we know that you accept it solely upon the merits of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, your Son. So, Father, we just uh, pray that this offering would be pleasing to you as a result. I also pray, Father, for this lesson. Please, Heavenly Father, I pray that you, your word says that when we're weak, we're strong. Your power is manifested in our human weakness. I pray that you would help me to bring, communicate to your people the subject uh, taught in Obadiah 15 of Lex Telionis, that Edom would be treated in the same manner they treated Judah. Help me to do this and, uh, in a fashion that's uh, pleasing to you and it ministers to your people, whether it's as individuals, and not just as individuals, but also all of us as a corporate unit. I pray the Spirit would do a mighty work through all of us and help your people in the audience. And I thank you for those in the audience. I pray you would help them to understand and to concentrate and to make application of what's being taught so that they can receive the necessary spiritual nourishment and ultimately that you and your son, Jesus Christ, would be glorified. So again, we pray for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. Obadiah verse 1. I'll read all the way to verse 50 and stop there. Obadiah verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations, and that was a, a, a fallen angel that did that, to say, rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations, and you'll be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights. You who say to yourself, who could bring me down to the ground? We saw some of the... Uh, the um, the sites of where Edom once uh, resided uh, centuries ago in the 6th century BC, and we saw that their geographical position was considered impregnable, and they were proud because of it. And God's saying, that's not going to matter to me. Then it says in verse 4, though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? And of course, they would. But God says in contrast to that, 
where the harvester would leave something behind and the thief would leave something behind, not stealing the whole house. It says in verse 6, but how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, betrayal, but you will not detect it. They'll be betrayed because they betrayed the, their blood relatives, the Jews. Verse 8, in that day declares the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, those of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Your warriors, Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. That's the prophecy of Edom's demise because of their treatment of their blood relatives, the Jews. Now we have the indictments, nine indictments that serve as the basis for this judgment. Verse 10, because of the violence against your brother, Jacob, you'll be covered with shame. You'll be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of, of their disaster, nor gloat over them and their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth and the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. The day of the Lord is near for all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. So Obadiah 15, if you could look at my translation on the board of this verse, we saw it in the first session, for the period of judgment to be brought about by the Lord against each and every one of the nations is imminent. It's, it could happen at any time. Just as you have done, so it will be done in the same manner to you. Your actions will return on your own head. So Obadiah 15 contains, as we saw in the first session, three prophetic declarations which actually present two reasons for the list of the indictments against the nation of Edom issued by the God of Israel in, the, in verses 10 through 14. So therefore, these prophetic declarations express the idea that Edom should never have ever mistreated the people of Judah when Nebuchadnezzar attacked the latter in 586 BC. Why? Because the Lord, who is the God of Israel, is about to judge all the nations and plying Edom as well. So the God of Israel would judge all the nations which cruelly mistreated the people of Judah, including Edom. So the first prophetic declaration, as we can see, asserts that the period of judgment to be brought about by the Lord against each and every one of the nations in that time is imminent. And the second, as we read, asserts that just as Edom treated the people of Judah during their time of disaster as a nation, so they would be treated in the same manner. The third reiterates the second by asserting that the Edomites' cruel actions towards Judah would return upon their own head. And the second and the third prophetic declarations, as we just read, are actually containing, that are contained in verse 15, are both expressing the biblical concept of lex talionis. You see this principle, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, some Muslim nations think they, they, they actually practice this, but they do it in error. I, I'll never, fate was around after 911, and there was this, actually this picture of they, had, I don't know if it was in Iran, Iran's a little bit crazy, 
and uh, I talked to some people who were in Iran. Iran's a crazy place, it sounds like. Uh, I wouldn't want to get uh, in a traffic gym with that. Ray was telling me some stories about Iran. I was like, I never want to go to Iran until they get some traffic cops there. So anyways, that we at Iran, so they, I think it was in Iran, and these, these nations in the Middle East that have Islamic law, they got this kid who stole something, and they basically put his hand underneath the truck and they ran, under, they ran his hand over. And in some places, they cut the hand off. That's not eye for an eye for two for a tooth. That's not the punishment fits the crime. It's over the top for crazy. That's brutality. That's, I don't even know what to call it. You're a whack job. That's, you know, where we come from, you're a whack job if you do stuff like that. He's a kid. He's probably hungry. He's probably starving. And you should have, you know, somebody should have given him a sandwich or something for crying out loud. So he steals something. Maybe he's at a candy bar. I don't know what he stole. But it doesn't warrant you cutting his hand off or running it over and deforming him. How is that the punishment fit the crime? It doesn't. So when God and his kingdom, and his, he want, when he gave his laws to Israel, he taught him this principle, eye for an eye, two for a tooth, which basically means, again, the punishment fits the tr- crime. Uh, Old Testament uh, uh, scholars, uh, biblical scholars, they call it lex talionis. They use that Latin expression. So the punishment must fit the crime. Now, as I said before in the first session, and I mentioned this before, that we have, uh, the Old Testament says murder, uh, you have murder, you have kidnapping, you have rape. These are all capital crimes, okay? So, in Israel, so you would be, so for someone to murder somebody, okay, this is the Ten Commandments, okay? So if somebody murders somebody, God said this when they came out at, at, in Genesis 9, after the flood, he gave them capital punishment. That was the basis for having human government. Remember, in Old Testament, before the, um, the flood, you had the antediluvian period, and there were no civil governments. There was basically vigilantism. You know, Charles Bronson would have fit right in, and Clint Eastwood would have fit right, those characters would have fit right in during that period. Now, God established civil government because he didn't want vigilantism. He wanted the government to pass, the, uh, to execute judgment. He established civil government there in Genesis 9, after the flood. Now, the whole purpose of our civil governments in the world today, the first, number one thing, is to administer justice to murderers and rapists and people like that, child molesters, and kidnappers, would administer justice to them. Now, in many parts of the world, if you murder somebody, you're executed. Of course, you have to have a jury of your peers in this country, of course, and I don't know if it's not true in every country, uh, but uh, in our country, we have a, we're a nation of laws, we're governed by laws, and we're supposed to be uh, put the, deal with these people. So what we do now is in many states, most of the states in the Union, we throw them into a jail. And they sit there and they get sodomized. It's brutality. You, become a, you have to become a part of a gang or you're gonna, you have to. You know, choice. If you don't, it's gonna, you're going to get killed and, and shanked. It's a terrible place. I have a friend who was a, a, um, in New England. He, is a, uh, he was two friends of mine. Uh, that were uh, basically guards in, in prisons. That's a terrible place. And it, they, these people are not getting rehabilitated. It's actually really ridiculous. It's totally, bib- un- it's not biblical. They didn't have these ma- supermax prisons in Old Testament Israel. Other nations of the world think we're nuts. I told you, I had a friend who was, uh, he was on an aircraft carrier and, uh, and was in the second Gulf War, the first, he, he was, I think it was his second one, I think. Yeah, and so he, he remembers when they went into Saudi Arabia or something. He said, you could, their, their stores, 
open, you know, jewelry stores, whatever, open. Nope, there's no worry about any crime, buddy coming in running and stealing anything because they know they would be dealt with severely. You know, there's a deterrent. So there was no, nothing like, like we have in our country, like in California, in any major, major, major city like Chicago, where the police, you know, drive by shoes, the police don't even go to certain parts of Chicago. There's no justice. We're not punishing the criminal as they deserve. The murderer is getting away. And you don't hear any politician, right or left, that talks about this. That's why they were existing today. Romans 13, that's what they're supposed to do. They're not doing their job. And I'm mentioning this because God says, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to minister, I'm going to judge you, and I'm going to install something, or a group of people that are going to minister justice according to my law and practice capital punishment. Other nations of the earth think we're nuts. We can't go anywhere. So justice is a part of God's government. Justice and righteousness. And God rules nations, he rules nations and individuals, he holds them to account. Not just individuals, he holds everybody to account. So if, if, if our government doesn't want, you know, the, letter, uh, the federal, state, local governments don't believe in capital punishment, God's still gonna, nobody's getting away with anything because they have to stand before Christ. And if you've rejected Jesus as your savior, you go to the lake of fire. So nobody's getting away with anything in the end. But here's the thing, is that, God also rules the nations with justice and righteousness. He practices what he teaches his people. Lex de Leonis, the punishment must fit the crime. So this Latin expression means that the people of Edom would be treated in the same cruel manner as they demonstrated toward the people of Judah. And therefore, these two prophetic declarations that we see at the end of verse 15 teach that God not only holds individuals accountable for their conduct, but also nations. And so, I, and again, I can't emphasize this enough. God <clears throat> uses evil nations to destroy other evil nations. Look at, uh, we saw this last week. Look, hold your place. Look at Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25, verse 1. Actually, uh, yeah, we'll, 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 that. we'll go to that. There's another one I'm going to show you, too. Look at Jeremiah 25.1. The word came to Jeremiah. I'll wait till you get there, sorry. Jeremiah 25.1. <clears throat> Excuse me. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. This is God in his grace. People say there's no grace in the Old Testament or loving God in the Old Testament. Why do you think he kept on sending them prophets? Because he loved them. He doesn't enjoy destroying nations. He doesn't enjoy, enjoy expressing and taking out his wrath, his righteous indignation against people and nations. He doesn't take any joy in that. Okay? 
He wants people to repent and trust in him. Stop what they're doing in the evil way of living and live according to his standards. He waits and waits. So he did this to Judah and he did this to the northern kingdom. He sent prophets in there. Like Jeremiah, they were called covenant enforcers. Meaning they were calling the people to live according to the law that they, God gave them, what we call the Mosaic law. We didn't get the law, the church, Old Testament Israel does. There are things we can learn from the law and teach us about God because it, it is his law. But it was applied, it was the constitution for Israel. So they would live against it. They didn't love their neighbor as themselves. They didn't love God with all their heart, soul, mind, strength. In fact, they practiced idolatry. So he'd send a guy like Jeremiah in. And over and over and over again, he tried to reach those people to bring them back to obedience to the Mosaic Covenant. Because as it says in Deuteronomy, 28, 29, and 30, before Moses' departure from this world, he gave them promises. If you obey me, I'll bless you. If you don't, I will judge you. Okay? And the way, you know, your punishment will be, will be uh, you, I'll deal out retribution, uh, which is commiserate with the sins that you've committed and your ungodly lifestyles that you, uh, you're practicing. So he says in verse 4, And though the Lord has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you, again and again, you have not listened to paid any attention. They said, Turn now, each of you, from your evil ways and your evil practices, and you can stay in the land the Lord gave to you and your ancestors forever and ever. Do not follow other gods to serve and worship them. Do not arouse my anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. But you did not listen to me, declares the Lord, and you've aroused my anger and with what your hands have made and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant, notice he says, my servant Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Just like he says in Jeremiah 27, as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar at this point is not saved. He's not a believer. That happens later along with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 2, 3, and 4. In fact, he's disciplined in chapter 4 as a believer. But Nebuchadnezzar, he's a servant to the Lord, an evil, wicked, pagan ruler, a butcher. He would, as we saw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he put him in an oven and burn him up. He had all kinds of wonderful ways of executing people. That's what he did. He, 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 had a fine, he, was, he was a master of this stuff. He was totally intimidating. You walked in the front of him, you trembled. He was God's servant, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and everlasting ruin. I will banish from them the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then he gives them grace. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon. And that's his grand, great-grandson, actually, Nebuchadnezzar, that he, he destroys, and it, which is Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon at that time and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord and I will make it desolate forever. Go back now to Obadiah, verse 15. Please. <clears throat> I 
Now, a great scholar named A.E. Hill, he's a commentator on the book of Obadiah, he says the following, and I'm quoting, the notion that crime punishes itself or the principle of retribution is well-founded in biblical teaching. Uh, he says that uh, your deeds will come up, return on your own head. That's what he's referring to. So he says the notion that crime punishes itself or the principle of retribution is well-founded in biblical teaching. The legislation of the Torah is rooted in the concept of lex talionis, or we could say eye for an eye, and he gives scripture, oh, uh, Exodus 21, 24, uh, Leviticus 24, 20, and Deuteronomy 19, 21. Hill goes on to say, he says that, let me back it up there, the legislation of the Torah is rooted in the concept of lex talionis, or eye for an eye, meaning punishment will be exacted in a fashion commiserate with a crime. Israel's wisdom tradition echoes this belief in Proverbs 26, 27, and Psalm chapter 7, verses 15 through 16, he says. And he says, even, even Paul acknowledges that a man reaps what he sows. And when Paul uses that, he's talking about in the concept, uh, in, in the context of fellowship with God. So when you sin, you reap what you sow. You lose fellowship with God. If you uh, obey the word of God, you will reap what you sow. You'll have fellowship with God. So it, it, he's talking in the context of the spiritual life in Galatians. But the principle is there, okay? So when we sin, we're bringing on our own misery. We're, we're, and, so, uh, and, and, and so therefore, when we confess our sins, God, because of what his son did on the cross, restores us to fellowship with himself. He gives us, we experience the forgiveness of sins again because he's faithful and tr true to his promise, to the, the covenant promise in the new covenant to give us the forgiveness of sins. So every time we confess our sins, we're saying, God, that promise, yes. So he restores us to fellowship with God. It says that he's faithful and true. Faithful to what? His promises to forgive us. So Paul, he says, acknowledges that a man reaps what he sows. Judah, he said, witnessed the surety of this truth when God used Assyria to punish Samaria and crush the Assyrian Empire by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. And tragically, when he used this same Babylonian king to destroy the, uh, uh, Judah because of her guilt. And then lastly, he says, Obadiah calls the remnant of Judah to observe the final destiny of the wicked and to rest in Yahweh as their portion and strength. So in Obadiah 15, this principle of lex talionis means that the God of Israel's judgment of Edom would fit the crimes they committed against Judah. Their punishment would correspond to the crimes they committed against the people of Judah. In other words, Edom's punishment would fit their crimes they committed against the Jews. If we compare people, the second and third prophetic uh, declarations here in Obadiah 15 with the list of indictments against Edom in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, 14, for the, as we look at that, these indictments are for their cruel treatment of the people of Judah. If we compare the second and third prophetic declarations in verse 15 with those indictments in verses 10 through 14, we can see that the God of Israel will see to it that the people of Edom would be punished in the same manner as they treated the people of Judah. Doesn't it say, remember we, in my translation of verse 10, you will be covered with shame, Edom, because of the sinful violence committed against your relative, the descendants of Jacob. Indeed, you will certainly be cut off forever. And if we compare this prophetic declaration with the second and third ones in verse 15, we can see that the Edomites would be covered 
uh, with shame because they violently mistreated their blood relatives, the Jew. Uh, then we, say, we see in Obadiah 11, indeed, you were like one of them during that period of time when you stood aloof. You're like the Babylonians during that time. During that period of time, strangers, the Babylonians, took his army captive, Judah's army captive. Consequently, foreigners penetrated his gates so that they cast lots for Jerusalem. So if we compare these prophetic declarations with the second and third prophetic declarations in verse 15, we can see that the army of the Edomites would be taken captive because they stood aloof while Judah's army was taken captive by the Babylonians. Also, Gentile armies would penetrate the gates of Edom cities. This took place in history. And cast lots for them. It took place in history. Why? Because they stood aloof while the Babylonians did the same to the cities of Judah. Then it says in Obadiah verse 12, Indeed, you should have never gloated during your relative's disastrous day. Specifically, you, Edom, should never have rejoiced over Judah's citizens during the period when they suffered destruction. Furthermore, you should have never boasted during the period of their distress. If we compare these prophetic declarations with the second and third, in verse 15, we can see that the Gentile nations would gloat over Edom's defeat because they gloated over Judah's defeat at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Gentile nations would rejoice over Edom's defeat just as they rejoiced over Judah's defeat. So Gentile nations would boast over Edom's defeat, again, just as they did to Judah. We have uh, verse 15. It says, uh, verse 13, excuse me. It says, you should have never penetrated my people's gates, the southern kingdom of Judah, during their disastrous period, the Babylonian invasions. You should have also never gloated during this, this misery, during his disastrous period. Specifically, you should have never plundered his wealth during his disastrous period. If we compare these prophetic declarations with the, the last two in verse 15, we can see that Gentile armies would penetrate the gates of Edom cities and gloat over their misery and plunder their wealth because they did the same to the people of Judah. Verse 14, it says, Indeed, you should never have stood at the fork in the road in order to slaughter his refugees. Furthermore, you should never have caused his survivors to be handed over as prisoners of war during the period of their distress. So, if we compare these prophetic declarations with the second and third in, verses, in verse 15, we can see that Gentile armies would slaughter Edom's refugees in that hour of national crisis and would have their survivors handed over to their enemies as prisoners of war because they did the same thing to Judah. These prophetic declarations recorded in verse 15, like all the prophecies recorded in verses 1 through 14, were fulfilled in history, people. The Word of God is inspired. We're talking about that subject on Wednesday evenings. Inspired by God. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And other passages where it says, Thus says the Lord. And we see this in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. The, the, the prophet saying, I'm speaking for God. And fulfilled prophecy demonstrates the Bible is inspired by God. You're looking for something to govern your life by? It's the Word of God, people. It's sure and true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's why we govern our lives. The Christian governs this, our lives by the word of God because it's alive and powerful. We got proof it is. When God says he's going to do something, he does it. 
in his timing. So these prophetic declarations were all fulfilled in history. All fulfilled in history. Because Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was able to capture the city of Petra, a city built in rock. And they took the citizens of Edom into captivity as they did the citizens of the southern kingdom of Judah. I told you, it's nothing for God to give wisdom to a military commander as to how to defeat an enemy. And he could do the same thing to the Chinese and the Russians with regards to us, if he so sees fit. But throughout the last, since uh, for a while now, he's been giving the United States our military wisdom and how to wage war, like no other in history, like no other. But we must never, ever get cocky and arrogant and think it's because of our genius. No, all wisdom, Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, all wisdom comes from Jesus Christ. And so the wisdom that's been imparted to our citizens and our military and intelligence, that comes from him. Don't ever think otherwise. It comes from him. Don't, we cannot be like Edom because God, God will teach us the lesson that Edom learned. It doesn't matter. You think you're impregnable. You think you've got tremendous weapons. You think you've got this and that and the other thing. I got a solution to all those answers, all those, all those weapons you have, because I gave you that wisdom, but I have an answer to your weapon system that I gave you and your wisdom, and I could have another nation come in and defeat you. You heard of the Trojan horse? I mean, we, we, we're not impregnable. So we should, our citizens in this country and our leaders should be very uh, uh, humble. And I know there are many are in our government. And it's nice to know that in our military we have some humble guys. One of the things I love about this congregation is a lot of ex-military guys. And they're just, and I had a friend comes in here and he said, wow, I can't believe how many guys in your church. I was like, yeah, isn't that wild? <laughs> Usually it's, you know, you have more women than men, but you have the men leading the way. It's like, yeah, isn't that cool? I don't see too many churches that like have that in this country. In this country. I don't know. And why is that? Well, they've been taught authority orientation the soldier has, the military man. So it's for him to sit and listen to the word of God, listen to the pastor, he's taught about authority orientation. He knows what it means to authority and to submit to authority. Authority is a good thing. It protects you from a lot of things. Okay, authority in the home, authority in the nation, authority in the church, authority in the marriage, with the, with the wife and the husband and the parents, with the children. God sets up authority not to keep, her, uh, to, to keep us from things like the devil would want us to think, but to protect us. So, prophetic declarations. All of these were fulfilled in history. The Bible's inspired by God. Listen to me, There's, there are people out there, men I respect, who say in our culture, we're in the postmodern era of America, and that we have, uh, have to approach the unsaved differently because they don't have any knowledge really of the word of God. And you know what I say to them? And these guys are not like dispensationalists like we are. They, don't, they, they steer away from prophecy, okay? I say... You use prophecy to evangelize the unsaved. What do you think people go to horoscopes? When I was a kid, I used to do horoscopes. I remember when I was 17, 18, when I was, you know, in my music. And, so, and I, like, I would wake up every morning religiously read the horoscope, you know. But I never think, 
why didn't I have a heart attack? Today you will drop dead of a heart attack. You don't see that, you know, in these things. They always say, well, today you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna marry Raquel Welch. She passed away not too long ago. I, I, I thought she was gorgeous. I wanted to marry Raquel Welch back in the day. And a lot of other women that were gorgeous too, like Suzanne Summers or whatever. So I, so I was like, oh Lord, why can't I get that promise to me? No, I didn't get that. You know, it's like, it's like every morning you get dis you just get discouraged. You know, it's like this, this is God. You know, you think you had to stop looking at the horoscopes. No, it appeals to our arrogance. But people, I say this because people want to know the future. They talk about Nostradamus. I have a family member who talks about him all the time. Nostradamus, have you read Nostradamus' stuff? And you read the Bible? And I, I give him examples. It's like, are you kidding me? Nostradamus? It's ambiguous. I don't know what he is saying, but I can take you to Daniel chapter one verses, uh, Daniel chapter eleven verses one through thirty-five, and it's been fulfilled in minute detail. Daniel nine twenty-four, twenty-five, and twenty-six in minute detail. Obadiah the first fifteen verses in minute detail. On and on, I could go all over there. The prophecies. I'm not even talking about the prophecies of Christ. Over three hundred prophecies were fulfilled during his first advent. The Bible predicts the future. So much so, Daniel, let's take a story about Daniel. Daniel has so many fulfilled prophecies. Most of Daniel chapter 2 has been fulfilled, except for the, the feet of the, of the image. That's, the, seventh, that's the, uh, the final stage of the Roman Empire under Antichrist. Almost all of Daniel chapter 7 has been fulfilled, except for the ten horns on the, on the fourth beast and the little horn, which is Antichrist and his ten-nation European confederacy. The 70th week's prophecy is almost fulfilled, except for the Daniel 9.27, which is the 70th week of Daniel. <laughs> you get Daniel chapter 11, the first 35 verses fulfilled in history. Verses 36 to the rest of the chapter are all about the tribulation period, yet future. It's all over the place. So much so that liberal scholars, not in their politics, liberal scholar, remember this, a liberal scholar doesn't believe in the supernatural. They would be like the Sadducees who didn't they believe in the resurrection. Okay? They don't believe in fulfilled prophecy because they don't believe in the supernatural. So they say Daniel must have been written in the second century BC. Why? It's like he's, yeah, read this, it's like he's after the fact. No, he predicted it in the sixth century BC, and these things came to pass. The fall of made of Babylon, the fall of made of Persia, the fall of Alexander's Greece, the fall, the, the disintegration of the Roman Empire, the crucifixion of Christ, the destruction of the temple, all in Daniel in the sixth century BC. We're not talking about the time of Christ was way, way down the road. But the, super, the, the, the liberal scholar today says, the biblical scholar says, that can't be. So they, they moved the date from the 6th century B.C., which has always been accepted by the Jews and the church for centuries. But in modern times, because of the Enlightenment, from the 19th century, 20th, 21st, I deal with people, liberal scholars all the time, that was the 2nd century B.C., what evidence do you have that? They don't have any. It just can't happen. It just couldn't be. But we have all this evidence that everybody recognizes it, including secular scholars who not have any, you know, you know, what do you call it in the game? <laughs> They're not Christians. They all recognize this is the sixth century BC. It's supernatural book. It's inspired by God. And this is very interesting. So we can evangelize the non-Christian with the gospel. That's how I got saved. I was 
plant you for this. I was in a rock band I actually had here. I actually looked pretty good back in the day. I had a hot little girlfriend from Lebanon, a Lebanese girl, and I had a band we called we called the Answer. <laughs> and we used, to, we used to play. We used to have we used to have girls jump on the stage. Well, my girl, her girlfriend, they used to jump on the stage like you know the go-go dances and stuff. I don't know what they were doing back then, but they would dance on the stage. We're like, oh man, we were. It was like so cool. Like I thought, well, I thought we we're gonna be the next Beatles, right? You know, and I was like, you know, there was, that, there was gonna be a rock star and everything. And my father and my mother, oh gosh, what is this guy's gonna do? He didn't go to school. You know, they weren't trying to get me to go to college. You're too smart, Billy. You're not you go to. So I said, no, I'm, I'm gonna do the music. He's like, okay, you can't tell Billy anything, right? So I, off I do that, and I make a mess of my life. And next thing I know, I'm in trouble. And I remember this guy who was, he was like an older brother than me. He, he was a Christian, and he was an excellent guitar player, great lead player, he taught me a lot of stuff. He's talking to me about Jesus. And I was like, ah, you know, because I was influenced by, you know, the Beatles and John Lennon, and he was, you know, how he worked out. He was early back then. So yeah, I'm like going, okay. So he comes and starts talking to me, and he was a cool guy. I looked up to him. He's a Christian. So we're talking, and he was talking to me about prophecy and the rapture, and the tribulation period, and the antichrist, I'm like, really, really? And I just, he sh 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 reeled me right in, and next thing I know, boom, at 19, and I remember the night, I was with my guitar, and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm like, oh gosh, what am I, and I just remember saying, Lord, I'm believing in your son, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Father, Jesus, I believe in you. I remember looking at the guitar, playing my guitar, and looking in the mirror, I was like, and that was it. And, I, and then for the next few days, it was like I had this, I don't know what, it was a joy. I was like, I, I was like, my mother like, what happened to him? And I just, I remember walking to work, like, you know, just talking to God. I didn't, even, I didn't have any knowledge really so much of doctrine, but I'm talking to God, and I don't even know what the heck I was saying. You walk, you see me walking down the street, and I'm like, what is he talking to? I was like, I'm talking to God. I was like talking to myself, talking to God. And I was just, it changed my life. But then I had a whole section of my life where I just, didn't have any knowledge of the Bible, really. I mean, I heard a lot about prophecy and everything. But once I got around 25, I said, I need to know my Bible, Lord. So next thing you know, J. Vernon McGee came to my life. Next, I was reading all these people out of Dallas, like uh, Wolverine and Pentecost and all those guys. Next thing I knew, I was got my pastor, Bob McLaughlin, and then he told me about Bob Thiem. And off we go. Next thing I know, I'm in Huntsville, Alabama at 61, and I'm a pastor. Okay, so there it goes. So what, back to the point about what evangelized me was prophecy. I told you the story. My buddy used to cut my hair. His wife, his ex-wife, he married a Christian girl later on, told him not to marry her. I think I mentioned that. He, I was breaking up with my girlfriend. I said, you should break up with yours, wife. Well, you know, she, she, well, I said, wait a minute. I, what I said was, she's not going to believe it should, you know, this before they got married. So you shouldn't marry her either, like I should marry my girl. And he goes, he went ahead and did it. He regretted that. And I remember, though, we used to double all the time. I said, he was asleep. Oh, my God. And I'm sitting there talking to his, his, uh, his wife, trying to lead her to the Lord. And I'm giving her prophecies. And oh, I took her to Psalm 22. And then I showed her the Gospels. I was talking about this on Wednesday. Boom, boom, the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53. Tremendous and showed in the gospel. He pierced through for our transgressions. They didn't break any of his bones. You know, they, the whole thing is like you could go back and forth, Old Testament, boom, the Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, flipped it to the gospel, back and forth, on and on it goes. And I could just see her going, 
jump, I'm going to jump, will you? And my heart was going, go, oh, you just jump. Stop being a chicken, go for it. She eventually, after they divorced, she ended up getting saved, he told me. Really? That's awesome, I said, that's cool. Because I really worked hard that night, I told him. But that I, it wasn't because of me, obviously. But uh, you're sleeping, and I was doing a lot of work behind you. Well, you weren't even you, awake. You should have seen what was going on there. It was so cool, I said. Well, anyways, but I, you know, prophecy. Fulfill prophecy. The postmodern, who cares about what the, what, the, what the scholar says about that? That's ridiculous. Told, show them unbelievable prophecy. This book is divine. Learn the fulfilled prophecies. You got one right here with Obadiah. You got it. You know, and this is cool because it shows that our religion is supernatural. Christianity is supernatural. It's also based in history. No other religion is like that. That's not my opinion. That's a fact. Islam, they plagiarized the Bible. The Quran. It plagiarizes the Bible. You know, I hear Muhammad Ali used to talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Say, that's the Bible. That's not the Quran. And there's only one guy, only one guy, Muhammad, that's behind the Quran. The Bible is written by over 40 people, different walks of life, over 2,000 years. Old Testament, New Testament. Kings, fishermen, <laughs> peasants, farmers, all types of people were used by God to communicate his will to the human race and his people. It's a divine book. These prophecies are telling us that the word of God is alive and powerful. It's a living book inspired by the Holy Spirit. We can evangelize the non-Christian with it, with these fulfilled prophecies, showing them these things, talking about what's to come, talking about the tribulation period and the Antichrist. God wants you to do that. He wants you to tell them what these guys are what's going to happen. I loved when the, the first Gulf War happened. And I remember I was working in a computer place. I was, whatever that was, I was, I was probably 28, 29, I don't know what it was. And I'm watching, and the, the whole thing was going down. And I remember Israel, you know, they were you know, fl you know, flipping missiles down into Israel. And I think we had the, the Patriot thing started then or whatever. And there was really talk, you know, that you know, Bush had to talk the, Israels, the Israelis out of going after these guys because the Israelis are getting ticked off with these flipping uh, you know, uh, missiles into their, their land and killing people. And they didn't want them to retaliate. They tried, I, I don't know. So I remember people coming in to me and my bosses were going, Billy, is this, the, is this the, uh, is gonna be the, end, you know, the, the Armageddon and all that? I said, no. They go, what? What are you talking about? Look at this. I said, a lot of things have to happen. First, I have to be out of here. <laughs> the church has to be raptured. Then you're gonna have all hell break loose, literally. I've gotta be gone. And I went to explain to him, and this is what's going to happen in the future. And you can avoid the wrath of God. First, remember we saw in First Timothy, First Thessalonians one five nine, we're delivered from the wrath to come. The church is, so we're delivered. So if I'm gone, I don't show up for work the next day. You know it's coming. You know it's coming for you. So that is, they were just petrified. I like when there's crisis. You might think, Billy, you're a whack job. I don't like crisis, but now I'm a pastor and I have to do a work in an evangelist. I love that stuff because it humbles people so that they stop thinking about stupid things. I put a thing on my Facebook page. Um, money could not, money cannot save me from God's wrath or death. But faith in Jesus does. 
who is, who, who, that's the most valuable possession I have is my faith in Jesus. What is your most valuable possession, I said. And I love when I post those things on Facebook. I don't do it out of, I quote other people, like that Experiencing God book Pastor gave me. But let me tell you something. Not many people responded. There were some that responded. You know why? Because there are a lot of people who, who were friends with me on Facebook. They don't like when I talk like that. Because you know what? They have their, 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 their wealth is their security. Not their faith in Jesus. Not being in union with Christ. They don't like that talk. So not many people go, oh, I like this one. But if I put, a, if I put myself on a video playing behind my head with a Jimi Hendrix national anthem, they would be like 500 likes on that. And all these people comment. But when I put something like that, no. I don't like Bill when he's like that. But that's Bill trying to reach out to those friends of mine that are not saved. Okay? This is serious business. So I like crisis. I like when there's a crisis. I love when things are going bad because it humbles people. It shows them their need. I told you this with family members. You know, I, I, I pray, I tell my congregation, I, tell, I do this myself. I pray, Lord, for the non-Christian, bring in whatever circumstances, peace, people, blessings, adversity, prosperity necessary to cause them to have the humility to give the gospel a hearing. Even for my family members. And I have family members who have gone through the ringer. I have family members that died, at 55 died of cancer. I knew what God was doing. So sometimes, you, you know, I'd rather somebody suffer a little bit in this life from cancer than for all of eternity in a lake of fire. That's how I look at it. Yeah, he suffered, but he's not suffering anymore. He's with the Lord. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not worried about him. I'm worried about that I do God's will the rest of the time on this earth. So we, we need to, you know, we look at God's perspective how, how things are. He's not looking for, to make life a highway for us. You know, we love our, we love our country. We always, maybe our country needs, maybe our country needs a, a real kick in the rear end. Maybe our country really does need a little kick in the rear end at this time. Maybe it'll wake up some people in this nation. Maybe it won't. Didn't, you know, not always happens that people respond. So, we have Babylon. We'll close with this. Babylon, they, wipe, they, they take the city of Petra, buried it, built into rock. Nebuchadnezzar, no problem. God gave him the wisdom to deal with that. He took the citizens of Edom into captivity as they, just as he did to the citizens of Judah. Arabian tribes moved into Edom during the 6th century B.C., which forced the remnant, the remaining Edomites, to migrate west. They became a province of the Persian Empire. They were no longer a national entity. They were ultimately reduced by John Hyrcanus of the Maccabean dynasty in Israel and lost their national existence under the Romans. They were cut off forever as a, nature, a nation, though the land would again be populated. How do I know all this? Secular history. Herodotus. The ancient historians outside of the Bible, they tell us what happened to them. So therefore... The prophetic theme of the day of the Lord, which appears in Obadiah 15, is used of God's judgment of Edom, which was literally fulfilled in human history. And this is indicated, again, by the fact that verse 15 presents two reasons for the indictments against Edom in verses 10 through 14. And we'll close with this point here on the board, if I could just get it going. We see that, uh, however, this phrase... 
foresh the day of the Lord, it foreshadows prophetically God's judgment of all the nations who mistreat the nation of Israel during the last three and a half years of the 70th week. So the prophetic theme of the day of the Lord again, which appears in verse 15, was used in the judgment of Edom in Obadiah's day, but it also foreshadows prophetically God's judgment of all the nations who mistreat the nation of Israel during the last three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week, which is yet future, future of the rapture. So we need to take a couple of things about this. Use prophecy to evangelize the non-Christian. Use prophecy to, to uh, motivate us to live a spiritual life because the rapture could happen at any time. Uh, we need to understand that adversity is actually our friend when it comes to evangelizing. Prophecy is our friend. We could use it to evangelize the non-Christian, but we also need to see something else. We need to gain encouragement by the fact that God judges the nations. He holds individuals to account. He holds nations to account. He punishes nations and individuals according to the crimes they've committed against him. So God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who sits at the right hand of the Father, is ruling everything. We just need to do our job. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to handle Putin and Kaching in China, and he, and he, and he wants, he didn't like that one. And then we have, he must have been talking to you after, during the break, and he wants to take care of President Biden too. He's got worried, he, he's got these guys in the palm of his hand. The, the king's heart is like channels of water in the Lord's hand. If he, could, if he could move Nebuchadnezzar, that wicked pagan, to believe in the Lord, I think he could talk to our president if he so sees fit. For all we know, he might be doing that. Who knows? He might call you into the Oval Office someday and like, and bada bing, bada boom, there you are. Give him, give him the gospel or whatever. So don't lose heart. Be encouraged. Let, don't let circumstances and adversity take away your joy. We show how great our God is when we rejoice and in in, in rejoice in our relationship with God and the hope, the confident expectation of blessing that we have that the world doesn't have, but we could give it to them. Know that. Take that in this week that we go to work and everything that you do, whether you're in your homes, in your families, in your neighborhoods, and whatever you do, do unto the Lord and rejoice knowing that you've got the victory because of your union and identification with Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Father, for everyone here. We pray that the Holy Spirit would do a mighty work to your people here, and we thank you for each and every last one of them that is in this chapel. And so, Father, we just pray that you'd guide each individual through the Spirit in making application of what they've been taught, that they would meditate upon it and think about it and put it into practice, the things that we've taught, make uh, application of what they've been taught here today with the week ahead that we have and to glorify you. And also, Father, we pray for the food that we're about to receive. And thank you, Lord, for the food and the great cooks in this church. And uh, I just thank you for giving them wisdom and a whoop of food for us that is so good and tasty. And so I just thank you for everyone that's going to be a part of this meal. And I just pray we'd have a great time of fellowship. And we pray that you would bless this food and sanctify it to our body's use. And our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Now, if I could, I'm just going to sing us a song and get you... And we can go to the food, if you don't mind. This one's called, We Are Loved. Oh, goodness. All right.
Somebody were asking about uh, my guitar. This is a guitar. My uh, congregation in, uh, no, actually Bob's ministry gave me years ago. This is all screwed up here. But um, they gave it to me as a gift. So it, it means a lot to me, but I don't play it as much because the other one is, sounds really nice, but it's getting worked on right now. Actually, it's ready to go for me to pick up. Sorry about that. All right. So this is called We Are Loved. It's a um, song I wrote back at uh, Prairie View. All right, let me just move my, my slide thing. All right. all hope when I'm feeling so very lonely I could cry I could die I think back to the cross and then I know that I am loved when I think back to the cross it's then I know that I am loved Yes, I am love In my darkest hours When I feel that I've been abandoned and abused And accused I think back to the cross And then I know that I am loved Cross. It's then I know that I am loved. I am loved with a love that resides in the nature of God. I am loved by a God who was willing to suffer, willing to suffer for me. Yes, I am loved. Tell you one and all When you're feeling so very lonely You could cry, you could die Just think back to the cross And then you'll know that you are loved Just think back to the cross And then you'll know that you are loved of God You are loved by a God who was willing to suffer, willing to suffer for you Yes, we are loved We are loved We are loved Oh yeah We are loved Yeah, we are loved, oh yeah, we are loved, oh yeah, 
You're dismissed.